when we suppress parts of our unconscious, then archetypal shadows come up. And But when we realize that we are the light and the shadow, and when we embrace or just handshake our demons and our shadows, then we are approaching wholeness. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. It's not helpful to conflate generosity with giving something away for free or selling it at a low cost. Giving something away is not the same as being generous. Being generous means having the capacity to be generative. Generative, as in how the strengthening light of spring brings forth the next cycle of life. Generative, as in the daily practice of caring for a garden, creating the conditions and the circumstances that are conducive to flavorful tomatoes and promiscuously abundant sugar snap peas. Generosity is not about giving away. It's about creating the ability and the abundance to have something worthwhile to share. You can't give what you don't have. You can't be emotionally generous with others when you're giving into a smaller story of yourself. Generosity does not mean free. It means caring enough to create and share something of value. It's easy and perhaps a cop-out to glue together low-cost and generous. Low-cost could simply mean lazy. It could mean you don't care or lack the imagination to dig deeper into creating value, meaning, and yes, even love and care. Free is never free. This world is built on exchange. Try exhaling without an inhale. Imagine the heart pumping out blood but not opening the valve first to bring blood in, or helping a child to navigate the complexities of social interactions that you yourself have yet to master, or at least come to peaceful terms with. We know this from our medicine, that proper and smooth communication within a system is essential for proper function and well-being. That proper exchange is the essence of capital H, health. Giving away more than you have does not make you more generous if it impinges on your ability to do the work that allows you to help others. It's not generous if you are not available to your family or attending to your own health and well-being. Generosity is not about giving away or selling at below your cost. It's being willing to do the hard work, the emotional labor, the investment of months or perhaps years in creating something of value. Generosity uncoupled from generativity is a false virtue signal. It's a kind of shia chia, pathologic influence that will in time hollow out and weaken your ability to make a difference in this world. Meaning and generativity, they go hand in hand. Our lives are cobbled together from stories and reflections out of what is both true and what is imagined. How much of your identity comes from what you know in your own heart, and how much comes from the gossip of the town square? How much from the reflection of your shadow, and how much from the reflection of your light? Free does not mean without cost. The question is, what is the cost, and what is the medium of exchange, and more importantly, what is the value of what's being exchanged? There is no such thing as free. In a moment, 
we're going to sit down with Lacey Dupree and chew the fat on one of acupuncturists' favorite topics, money. All right, sit with that for a moment. Money. What's the first image that arises for you? And what's your opinion about that image? When you consider money, whose voice are you listening to? Is it someone in your family, your friend group, the culture at large? What part of that culture? Well, we will be getting into all of this and more. But first, a quick word from the sponsors of today's conversation. The first being, well, us, namely Geological. Your weekly Geological conversation comes to you in large part from all the folks that help to keep some inspiration in the teacup with a monthly or annual membership. In addition to the warm, cozy feeling of supporting the podcast that connects you with the voices of our community for these intimate conversations on medicine, method, and perspective, there's also some perks that go along with membership. Visit the website and look under the Chiologicians menu for the details. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, Hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. 
This season and every season, trust Mei Wei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. All right, friends, let's get into this conversation on one of the more formed and condensed aspects of qi that everybody needs like we need air, money. Lacey Dupre, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me here. I'm honored to be here. Hey, we were just talking before we started rolling some tape because we're here today to talk about money. And I was I was telling you about this like groovy new podcast machine I hear have here that lets me adjust the sound and things like that. And you were saying we should put the Darth Vader filter on to talk about <laughs> money, which I thought is hilarious. But at the same time, this is partly why we're sitting down to talk about this today. It's like, what's up with how we think money is so flipping bad? Right. And you know that's that's a funny point because Darth Vader actually perfectly personifies uh, money in our culture in our Western culture right now, you know, because he's all dark and scary and inaccessible, and then he takes off his mask and he's like meow, you know, just this. Well, I don't know if he's meow, but he can use a little fun. Well, you know, but he's unrevealed and he's you know just the same as as all of us, right? You know, and. He's an archetype, basically. An archetype. Mm-hmm. A very armored archetype. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, before we get into archetypes and money, which I think is a super juicy thing to get into, what got you interested in money? It's like, if you're so interested in money, how come you're not like a stockbroker or something? Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, and that's, um, that's a fabulous question because there's, you know, as a a wellness professional, right? Like I'm a, you know, doctor of Chinese medicine and a lot of acupuncturists have this disdain or this disconnection or this issue uh, surrounding money, right? And I think it comes from this, this place as a wellness practitioner or maybe as a spiritual practitioner in that we distance ourselves because of our, again, our Western culture has this um, filth associated with money um, as the root of evil, right? Here here comes Darth Vader again. But um, yeah, so, you know, I'm just putzing around in my clinic as an acupuncturist and um, dealing with a lot of chronic pain and anxiety. 
um, as most of us deal with, right, in our clinics. And it always, the, the conversation I noticed, always, not always, but so often, um, turned to finance in terms of like when we got down to like what's really going on here or maybe it was just a general conversation not even about their pain or their anxiety but just like something a, a topic that they were just concerned about and i'm like man we are all so obsessed with money and it's such a taboo subject and so i'm an anthropologist so of course lights went off for me like ooh let's this is like a a thesis that we need to dig into, right? So yeah, then began an obsession with why we don't address money, talk about it in a, in a very real way. And, you know, lots of scholars do now that I'm obsessing about it. It's like, I see that it's very much well-written about. Joseph Campbell talks about it, you know, uh, Carl Jung. I mean, all, all our mythologists and this, you know, the archetypal psychotherapists, it's all there. And just found that it was um, this this common thread for me clinically, and then of course as an acupuncturist and a spiritual practitioner, my own disassociation with money and like struggles with it. So it definitely came from my own struggles and disbelief in myself and my worth, um, the things that we often struggle with, and how that relates to money. Disbelief in our worth. I mean, that really ties right into value. Money value. There's a couple things that you said here that really, it just kind of caught my attention. You were talking about disdain for money and dissociation around money. Mm. So uh, that brings up two questions. I'm, I'm going to get into them in a second. But the first, the thing about disdain, um, I recently was listening to a podcast on this psychotherapist from Seattle whose name, Gottman, John Gottman. And he evidently can tell you if a marriage will work or not within like 10 minutes. Yeah. You familiar with this cat? Oh, yeah. I have his cards and everything. Oh, yeah. Okay. So one of the things that he talks about is like the four horsemen of the, you know, apocalypse in terms of relationships. And one of the key things is disdain. That if you disdain your partner and you mm -hmm. express disdain, your relationship has got a one-way ticket to divorceville. Right. And so when I hear you use the word disdain around money and, and, oh my gosh, I unfortunately have plenty of experience of relating to it that way. Well, no, the hell wonder money didn't want to hang out with me. <laughs> yeah. You were like, here's the door money this way. Yeah. It's a one way door. <laughs> it's kind of like one of those borderline relationships. Hey, come here and be close to me. Hey, I get the hell out of here. You're, you're filthy. I hate you. You're filthy. I hate you. Come a little closer. I like that. You know, <laughs> it's so effed up, right? <laughs> well, I mean, we're having a good time talking about it at the moment, and it. But yeah, our relationship with money, I think, in many ways, it is that um, complicated, convoluted, and oh my God, are we ever contradictory with ourselves around it? Yeah. And, you know, and that's the subconscious too, right? I mean, you and I can talk till we're blue in the face about how we're working on our money story, but until it's, you know, in, until we realize they're the subconscious stories that we're ta talking about and, you know, like we can go into like biohacking and neuroplasticity and also spirituality and soul work until we go there, the subconscious realm, 
it'll it'll always be a struggle. It'll continue to be um, filthy, and uh, we will continue to hate it and repel it. <laughs> no fun. <laughs> Don't want to repel money. Well, it makes life hard. Having spent part of my life repelling money, it can be fun. Because you're over in the camp here of, well, we hate money and we don't need money. And, and you know, I'm living in this voluntary poverty. I'm somehow a little bit better than those bozos over there driving a BMW. Right. Except their BMW always starts when they get in. And my car back then did not always start. And it smells good. And it smells good. And they drive great. Oh, my God. But back to this thing about dissociation. Because, you know, this is what we're talking about here. Can I inhabit this? Can can I let myself into this experience? And so I'm wondering about like your family's thoughts and messages around money. Cause a lot of times it comes from our family. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes from our culture. So was your family down with money? Did they think it was a bad thing? Were they like happy to have it? Were they happy not to have it? What, 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 what kind of family did you grow up in? Well, yeah, there's and there's so much to say on that because first I want to say that that it's it's such a good question because it's not just our family or just our culture. Um and it's it's all of it and it's also you know, as, as much work as we want to do in that area, it's not entirely in our power, meaning it's not our fault, right? And I, I'll I I can unpack that and get into that, but yeah, my my family. So that is a huge issue, I think, for so many people. Again, it goes back to the taboo. My family didn't talk about it. My dad didn't teach me. He Maybe he thought he was teaching me with his, like, every once in a while, gaga, you know, saying something, uh, make money, you know, get a good job. And then towards, as I got older, like later in my 30s, it was like I could see the change as he got older. Um that money was not the most important thing and that he actually wanted happiness for me, but that was never told to me, right? So my dad came from uh, very much poverty, um, had nothing of his own, ever one of 10 kids, um, which is unimaginable as a mother myself, you know, um, giving birth <laughs> 10 times. For that matter, oh my God, 10 kids? That like, was she work. pregnant her entire life, her entire fertile life? Yes. And she was pregnant when her da- when her older daughters were pregnant, like this is the craziness of it. Anyway, so he never had his own stuff. Um, I remember going to their house growing up. You know, my, gra- my grandparents' house. It was tiny, so you know, I mean, where did they all sleep? You just couldn't even imagine it, right? And um, then my mother, on the other hand, um, she she had some like there was some money there. I know, but she never talked about it. Um, and I don't think there, I think this, this is a huge component in our society is that like this calling back of like this elder wisdom, right? Like this taking money out of the, again, the taboo sphere. And like, we need to talk to our kids openly about money and about our struggles with it. Like elders need to come out of their retirement homes and tell us their stories about money and like how they made so many mistakes. You know, we don't need to just hear the good stuff. Like I needed my dad to like share more, maybe not, you know, of course, as a child, not so much about struggles because of course, protecting. Did did your dad have a good opinion? I mean, was he like, hey, money's bad or money's good or, or you can never have enough? I mean, what? coming from that background that he was in. Mm. What yeah. was his stance toward coin? It was 
that that was very much your um your sense of worth and he still believes that cuz i had a conversation with him a few months ago and it's still very much like i um I, so what what happened to him was he started his own business in a garage with zero and uh, made did very very well okay and he was in the oil industry in southern louisiana so of course like the environmentalist in me it was always this like oh, it's dirty, filthy money that my dad makes, but yet it's paying for my education, right? So very much that struggle. Um, and again, I'm coming from like a privileged white person's perspective here. As as opposed to an unprivileged white person's perspective? <laughs> because your dad does not sound like he was a privileged white person. You're right. You're right. And I'm also Cajun. So right, all our bloodlines are all mixed and mashed and mingled. Yes. Thank you for that clarity. But he definitely put his own worth with money. And so I had to undo that for myself mm. and have those dark conversations of like, you know, making a ton of money does not mean I'm a person. And I, I definitely think I had to, I learned that, that, that his, his sense of worth very much came from, from money and buying all the toys. He had all the newest gadgets, which I thought was so cool, you know, but you see it. Yeah, you know, we see it in celebrities. We see it in lottery winners. Shit don't last. <laughs> well, shit always changes. We know that from just reading the Tao Te Ching, right? Exactly. It's teaching. I mean, there's that. So your dad started, I mean, talk about a couple legs not up. Cajun. Swamp dweller. Know, Cajun swamp dweller. <laughs> Started a business in his garage. <laughs> Good for him. Seriously, he taught himself everything he knew. He he never went to college, you know, so he had to learn all the, um, he was a machinist. So all the algebra and geom like all the, the maths and the calculus and calculations, he had to learn to program and he learned programming. I mean, just, and then he taught my brother that. And my, and my mother, she was pretty awesome. She did the whole mother thing, which is not considered a job in our culture. And it's, and it's becoming more so. But then she went back to college when she was in her 40s. And she and I walked down the graduating aisle together for our undergrad. So that was pretty rad. That's yeah. really rad. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot to be said for starting out with not much. And I'm not here to like, you know, say, oh, you should have a Horatio Alger success story. Sometimes those troubles that we have that come to us because of our, our circumstances, just accidents of birth or uh, mistakes that we make, like for myself, my family didn't have a problem with money. They were like, hey, money's, money's a fine thing. Money means you can buy a boat. Money means you can feed your kids. Money means, I mean, we're Jewish. Money means you could have like a pocket full of diamonds in case you need to run the hell out of town because you might be chased out of town. My family did not have a problem that money was a bad thing. Money was a helpful tool. I learned that money was not good because of the time I grew up in that hippy-dippy time. And I got those messages from the culture. Hey, money's not good, right? We should all be equal. It's not fair that some people have more. Well, some people like your dad mm. scrapped it, man, and made it, right? And there are other people who they don't quite work as hard or they didn't see opportunities or they didn't make opportunities. And so 
I, I mean, I and I think in, for myself, some of it was a certain kind of laziness when I was in my 20s. Well, how come I have to work so hard when it, apparently that person over there is not having to work so hard? How come they got more? Well, I can tell you why they got more. At this point, I look back and I go, they were doing work that had higher value. Mm. And because they were doing higher value work, they were able to make more money because they were providing more value than I was providing. Yeah. Took me a long time to realize that, that, hey, if I'm going to have enough to eat, I better make sure that I'm providing some really good value. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we just get money twisted up in our minds with, with, worth and value. And we think that there's a scarcity of money and that if we are taking money from somebody, then there's not enough for someone else or that we actually are taking it from them. But, you know, money, money is equated to the, the, the divine feminine in our, in our world. Okay. And we have repressed this divine feminine and she's, she's coming back. Um, and we are going from a very young centric masculine economy to a feminine economy and not all the way to a feminine, of course, because we want to have the balance. We know we need the yin and the yang. So this notion that, um, the divine feminine is also in, is, is an aspect and embodied in money Then we know that she is infinitely abundant, right? And just as in nature, when we consume something and, you know, we maybe eat it, energy, food, whatever, it doesn't mean that we're taking from somebody. Yeah. So I think a lot not having enough is this fear, you know, and all this like abundance, law of attraction, people always talking about, oh, you're just scared that, you know, people will look down on you if you have too much money, so you're blocking it. And I that never really jived with me. It's it's more like maybe you're scared as an empath or um, somebody who is, you know, a highly sensitive person that you are taking from someone else. And maybe that is more closer to this, to one of the many, many mindset truths that we have of, um, you know, we don't want to rob anybody because we, we have these beliefs that like, oh, if I'm, if I'm making money that I have to either steal it, I have to get lucky and win it. I have to forcefully take it. Um, you know, we have all these, we have to work really hard to get money. And so we have to unravel those beliefs, you know, and really see the truth of money in that it is, um, it's not, you know, we've, we've put it on this, like this God pedestal to where it's un unobtainable and are unapproachable, whereas it's really all around us. Or put it on the devil pedestal. Or the devil. Yeah. Both. Right. Totally. So what I hear you saying is that many of us, and, and I understand this, having stood in that place at one time in my life, that money is a zero-sum game. I get it. You give it. There's less in your pocket now and more in mine. End of story. It's not that. It's not that. What I'm hearing you say is it's regenerative. It's more like an ecosystem. Right. And it's possible that both people could benefit and come out ahead through a monetary exchange. Definitely. 
especially about the value you were talking about. So say you you have an online course and I buy it. So say you charge $200 and I'm I'm out 200 and that's you know you you maybe in your head are thinking okay Lacey's out of 200 but really what's happening is I have gotten so much value that that it's I've gotten 2 million dollars worth of value. So it's just this like it's more along the lines of what you were speaking of in terms of value, you know, and then of course, charging, you know, charging what we think that are the, the value of what we're putting out there. So that in turn, we can put more valuable stuff out there, like put all your stuff out there, put your tap into your creative genius. We all have this inner genius inside of us and it's very valuable, right? I mean, we are born absolutely perfect. And we are born with this innate genius. So yeah, I just encourage all my clients to put that shit out there, charge, experiment, test it, and keep on trucking. Because we get so blocked with pricing, especially I keep like to bring it back to acupuncturists. Oh my gosh. And playing the insurance game is so hard. And all those things that we talk about with pricing. Oh my gosh. I've had to like talk acupuncturists off of ledges with their pricing. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I want to come back to this pricing thing in just a second. Okay. But before we do, this thing about recognizing our value, tell us more about that. Huh. Recognizing our value. Well, um, it's just, I think value is, okay, like we have this concept of worth, right? And and then it's it kind of flows into, oh, this is our value. Um so you are inherently worthy and you create something valuable, right? Because you are divinely worthy and perfect. So when we create something valuable and we are passionate, we stand behind it and we truly believe in it, that sends this ripple effect out into this, you know, it resonates out into the world. And I just think that bringing awareness to that to that aspect of, of ourselves of like, you know, you can create something that is very valuable um, because we each have that capacity. It's, it's just as simple as that. Um, and I actually just, I like to talk through 
the specifics of somebody's ideas or what they consider valuable and kind of go from there because each of us have our own uh, individual notions. And like sometimes we can call them blueprints about where we derive, you know, our sense of, of value and what we deem as valuable. And that comes from, you know, ancestral lineages and our culture and our personal belief systems. So there's, yeah, I, I think that's, does that answer your question? Let's noodle on this a little okay. bit. So I hear phrases like, divinely worthy and perfect. You're already divinely worthy worthy and perfect. And I'm thinking at one level, like TND ran, right? Heaven, earth person. Mm -hmm. Like at a heavenly level, yes. At an earthly level, not at all. Right. Okay? Right. Like, like in totally. essence, yes, you could say that. But like down here on the earth, I am far from perfect. Mm -hmm. And as far as like being innately worthy – that in a dollar ninety five will get me a cup of coffee. <laughs> I know what you're saying. So, in some ways, yes, I'm with you, but I think we need to make a distinction between like that heavenly level of you're like already perfect and worthy, and the fact that we're here on the earth, everything is distributed incredibly unequally because you know the world is just an uneven place. Good luck with making everything even. That would be called complete entropy. Right mm -hmm. when everything's even, they'll be like zero. There's you know yeah. energy fields go up and down, and there's this that flows into that. You know, blah blah blah. But back to this Earth realm. No, I don't think I am perfect. In fact, I think I've got plenty of work to do. And the more work that I do, and the more that I understand how things work here on this Earth plane, the more use I will be because I understand better how things work. But I can tell you from the experience of finding out a lot of different ways that things don't work, far from perfect. Totally. And and you just said it. I mean, you you just answered what I think is is the question mm -hmm. um, by saying that your soul work is bringing your conscious your conscious awareness to your perfect self and that's essentially what we're doing here. So we, as, as heavenly beings, we are whole and one and one with the universe. At least that's what the teachings of so many cultures teach us. It's harder for the Western mind to grasp because we didn't grow up with those tenets, but we have realized them. So I think our earthly job as, as, as earth beings is to just, is, is the pursuit of that. Um, and it's not an end game or an end goal. It is just this continuous bringing awareness to this wholeness, this oneness. And then we can, you know, if you wanted to go into psychology, it's, you know, the ego and the soul and how we can talk about archetypes in this capacity of, you know, when we suppress parts of our unconscious, then archetypal shadows come up. And, but when we realize that we are the light and the shadow, and when we embrace or just handshake our demons and our shadows, then we are approaching wholeness. I love that idea of handshaking the demon. I don't want to invite that demon in for lunch. No, you're <laughs> not invited for lunch. No. <laughs> he doesn't get a seat but, at the table or she doesn't. Well, actually, I think 
you know, this is interesting. I just said, no, I don't want them for lunch. And I don't. No demons for lunch. It's bad for <laughs> that being said, I think I do want them to have a seat at the table. I don't have lunch with them. Yeah. But I want them to have a seat at the table. And much the same way 2020 and having like two months of uh, enforced vacation because of COVID made me realize that there's an element of being burdened that goes with being a practitioner. There's a burden that we carry and caring for others. And I didn't know I had that. Now I do. So it's got a seat at the table. Helps me know when I'm doing too much and it's useful. So yeah, having, inviting the demons for a handshake, not for lunch, but a seat at the table. What do those shadow aspects have to say to us? How can they help us in this money drama that we tend to create for ourselves? Well, first, money is um, one of our biggest collective shadows that we've created as a culture, you know, and and the repression of um, its divine femininity and its its um, its magnificence. Oppression of divine femininity. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Okay, um, and and then we'll get into the the shadow aspects of, of why they're so important to address them. Um, yeah. So when we repress um, anything, right? It. Um, it only magnifies the shadow. So if mm. money is and is this embodiment of the divine feminine, and all cultures have have spoken of this, it's in an art, it's you see it in the coins, you see it in early monetary systems. Um, money was first represented by cow, like heads of calf, cows, uh, cowrie shells. Um, you know, in in China, the um, ideogram for uh, the cowrie shell is represented in all sorts of uh, pictograms for money. You you'll see it now. Like if you look up the the ideogram cowrie, um, which was money, and and the first bronze coins in China were uh, representations of cowrie shells, and um, just the cowrie shell itself, you know, of water, very feminine um, aspect of it. And it's it's a, it represents a vulva. Anyway, so this this um, divine feminine that came from our ancestral, you know, lineage of um, more matriarchal societies has been repressed. And, and actually some think that the first signs of the ascent of, of patriarchal society, which we have now, came with the, um, with, with climate change, with desertification, and then the ensuing warring over resources that, that came from climate change. And so it's like it's happening again. And now the balance is coming back into more matrifocal. So it's not going to, we're not, we don't want to go completely into a matrilineal society because we know that it must be the balance between the two. You know, our currency must be yin and yang. We must invite in a feminine economy, meaning more equity and sustainability and community, but, but go ahead. You have a question. I was just, I was just going to ask you, what does a more feminine economy look like compared to a masculine economy? Yeah, that's, that's great. So a masculine economy is one that is hierarchical and focused on competition. And a feminine economy is um, one that is focused on sustainability, community equity. And in a masculine economy, we also have, um, the the repression of the divine feminine, which will brings out when you know when you repress shadow, it 
gives it power. And kind of there's this fear, this fear that that splits it. And so we get these two aspects of um, this repressed shadow, which is scarcity and greed. And that again is more yin and yang. So greed or the accumulation of resources in a masculine economy um, is yang and scarcity and fear of scarcity in a masculine economy is yin, right? So excess and deficiency presentations. And deficiency. Yeah. Can I ask you about hierarchy? Yes, I would. Yeah, I would love that. <laughs> What's wrong with hierarchy? So hierarchy, there's nothing wrong with hierarchy. Because I often hear this. It's like, oh, the patriarchy and that hierarchy. Right. I hear that. It, it's like a buzzword. It's a buzzword, a trigger and, word. And people say it, and then you hear it, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm asking that hierarchy. Ooh, that bad hierarchy. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with hierarchy? Hierarchy lets you know who's, like, really good at something. And if you look at nature, you know, there's a pecking order. Like, there's hierarchy everywhere, right? It's it's how we build our hierarchy is – and. If if you look uh, if, like like if you would Google the word hierarchy, and Google the word network, you would see the rise in popularity of the word network. So it's just rebuilding a hierarchy in a better way, basically. So that doesn't mean smushing down the the heavy lifting from the top down, and so that you know, or doesn't mean having more dictators as middlemen. Because you're still going to have this high, no, no matter how you try, like Zappos has tried to do this like holacracy and people are trying to bring in like flat, flattening hierarchies. And really it's just about building a better one and a more integrated one, a networked one and a web just like nature does. So if, like we know, like if we just freaking imitate nature, well, we win, you know, I mean, because we are, because we are nature. So it's just building this, um, you know, a tapestry, a web, a network, which we see. I'm like, we see it like this crazy interweb that we are weaving as we come into climate change and this divine feminine rising and all the things we see. It's like, you know, we're going to flip open a history book in a hundred years and be like, it was so obvious, you know, um, it's right there. We all see it happening, which is why I find money so fascinating because it's this like thread that weaves through the whole thing. And it's, you know, death, sex, and money. Those are our taboos in Western culture. And so I just, I love, I love seeing how money is woven throughout all of it. Because money is simply a representation of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like, dig into it. It's our soul work. It is the best way to bear your soul is how you deal with money, how you think about it, how you operate with it. I'd rather go for the sex for that <laughs> myself, but... Um... Yes. Can we have both? Can we have it all? <laughs> I, want, I want to come back to hierarchy for just okay. a moment because it's something I've been thinking about a fair amount myself lately. The idea of a web in, in interconnections, like you say, like we see in nature, it's everywhere in nature. It totally makes sense. But we also see within nature, in these interlocking webs, you'll see like well, for example, there's this uh, red-tailed hawk that lives in my neighborhood. I see that hawk flying outside on a fairly regular basis. That dude is at the top of his food right. chain. So even in nature, you're going to see these webs, but you're also going to see 
hierarchies mm-hmm. of um, like as you move up, there's fewer and fewer like critters. The pecking order that occupy those positions. I don't like the word pecking order. Okay, tell me why. I, I don't like the word pecking order because pecking order assumes that it's from the top down, and if you're below, it means you're going to be shit on and too bad for you. I agree, that's true, right? It's like you don't want to be at the bottom of any. You know, you. I mean, gravity. You don't want to be downhill of bad things. Okay. So, and and that way, yes, you got to watch out for hierarchies. But the thing about hierarchy that's come to my attention is it is something that will naturally arise in any human endeavor. Because, like, when I want to get my car fixed, I want to find the most honest and most capable human being who can do that job. If I need some surgery. Where I need to get a tooth extracted. I want the person who's like really good at that. I want like the dentist's dentist. We all want people really good to help us with the things that we need to get done in life. And how do we know who those people are? They're sitting at the top of what they do. It doesn't mean that they're pecking and being mean to the people underneath them. I think if they're really good at what they do and they're at the top of a hierarchy, they are grateful and helpful to the people below that are supporting them to be where they are. It doesn't mean abuse. It just means that you're damn good at what you do. And so you kind of rise to the top. Definitely. And you hit the nail on the head because it's it's not about abuse or shitting on or when we build a better hierarchy. Yeah. It's just about expressing our our unique gifts, our talents, our awesomeness, our genius. And also when we are in a, you know, this web of life, we will get eaten and we will eat and we will shit and we will get shat on sometimes. And, you know, you know, being accepting of that. And um, it's, it's that sense of okayness, right? That like Buddhism teaches. Um, It doesn't have to be golden light and, you know, incredible, like, just like we're not going to embrace our demons, we're just going to have, we're just going to shake their hands. So this okayness with being eaten or eating or being, you know, being prey or predator um, and being okay with the natural order of things. And I think that is, and, and taking the demonizing out of hierarchy is important. Like, like you were speaking to, there's no Take, taking the abuse out. Definitely. And I think that is what is happening in the the hierarchies that we see that people are talking about, is that there's dictatorship, totalitarianism, you know, in terms of like economies. And then there's, yeah, there's there's abuse, there's oppression. Um, we see all sorts of, we, we know this, this year has most definitely shown us racism. We've seen sexism, all, all the things. So it's it's building a better a better system. We all know that there are different types of chi in our body. We work with chi to direct it where it's needed, move it upon congestion, and tonify it when it's insufficient. There's a lot happening today that has us thinking about immunity. There isn't a direct translation of biomedicine's immunity in Chinese medicine. Wei Qi guards the body from exogenous invaders. Zheng Qi reflects our capacity to maintain large health. It's our adaptive ability, the strength of our reserves and our vitality. Mushrooms have been used medicinally throughout history. Real Mushrooms 5 Defenders formula blends five heavy hitters to boost Zheng Qi. 
Changa, one of the world's most powerful antioxidants, Rishi and Mayataki act on white blood cells, Turkey Tail stimulates cytokine production, and Shiitake supports cardiovascular health. If you're ready to try Five Defenders for yourself or share it, take advantage of professional pricing at 50% off retail with no minimum orders. Visit www.realmushrooms.com forward slash chi. Thanks to Real Mushrooms for sponsoring today's show. I want to come back to shaking the hand of the demon and inviting him to a place at the table. It's a very lovely image, but how do we actually do that? Because that's a demon, goddammit. Right. So, okay, I have this really fun uh, course that I teach that's you know, extremely inexpensive. Um, and it's building a money altar. And one of them is like literally visualizing money as a force and maybe as like a fiery demonic force. Right. Um, so, you know, there, and then it's just like when we look at like Tibetan tankas and we see those beautiful, incredible demons or, you, you know, most, most cultures have these like demonic type of visualizations, you know, um, that we can, like yidams that we can uh, look upon. But I think for everybody it's different. But in terms of a spirit, like money as a spiritual practice, which is, I like love to talk about that, it is picturing this demon. And, you know, this demon can take many forms. It can be maybe somebody in your life. It could be money. It could be um, one, you know, a shadow an archetypal shadow aspect that you have brought awareness to and, you know, doing all the things that, you know, spiritual teachings teach, sitting with it, sitting at loving kindness, the forgiveness. There's so many different ways um, that we can go about handshaking. And I hate to just say meditation, but just sitting in, in quiet and bringing up this, this um, picture in your mind and knowing that it's, it's a part of you and it's actually a very powerful part of you. And I think that that could lead us back into what we were going to talk about, which is shadows. Because when we bring awareness to our shadow, that is approaching wholeness, right? And so our shadows hold our our creative power. Like every time you want to, uh, every time you, you push something that you dislike about yourself into the shadow, you're giving it power because it's building, building, building. It's like the big dust bunny under the rug. It only gets bigger, right? So when you take that dust bunny out from under the rug and, you know, hold it, that's embracing the demon. I mean, it's it's literally that simple, you know, and saying like, okay, you are a part of me and um, actually thinking a little bit about why um, you do it. And oftentimes you are gaining something from from uh, shunning that part of you. Say clinically, I mean, I know you've seen these sorts of patients. They derive pleasure and attention from their chronic illness, right? So without that chronic illness, they don't have an identity. They have completely latched on to um, that, that illness. We see it most, I see it the most with fibromyalgia. And, you know, people, they even get tattoos of symbols 
of fibromyalgia and they tattoo them to their bodies. It is their total identity. So it's, it's, it's very powerful, you know, these these, these demons that run our lives. And Carl Jung calls them the shadow. It's the unconscious aspects of ourselves. So there are a myriad of ways to work through that. But the first step is bringing awareness because boom, when you start bringing anything to your conscious mind and awareness, you can begin to look at it. And it's, you know, we know that. So are you saying that those characters that I see, not inside, but like over there, like those jerks over there who are being a certain kind of way with money, I should maybe take another look because perhaps I'm actually doing that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we all do that. Yeah. It's human nature. Can we just go see what's good on TV? <laughs> Netflix <laughs> and chill, man. <laughs> right? The opiate of the masses. And it sounds like a fairly simple prescription. Oh, it's so simply said and so not easily done. Have you got some thoughts on making it a little bit easier? Yeah. So I would say to make, well, to make, to make what exactly? Because I could talk ad nauseum about all these things. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I'll, I'll make it shadow work around money and the way that we perceive ourselves as valuable in the world. That shouldn't be too hard, should it? <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. I would say the first thing one could do is to write a letter to money and really think about money as a spiritual entity, as something with a presence and write a letter like, dear money, this is what I think about you. This is what you've done to me. This is this is what I need from you. This is what I'm willing to give you. You know, and just really kind of getting some clarity about where your money beliefs stand because we don't we're not taught that. That's not part of our culture. You know, we're taught about balance your checkbook or, you know, make a hundred thousand dollars in a year, or, you know, all these other tenants that just come from a system that is imbalanced. So just a simple like 
ground zero, where do I stand on, on an individual level from my unique perspective with money will do wonders for you. You will, you will feel a crack, an opening. I mean, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm already composing a letter in my mind, right? Dear money. <laughs> you suck. No, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Right. Good. Dear money. I apologize. Oh, I'm yes. sorry. I treated you like shit for decades. <laughs> yeah, I would. I think I'm. I think it would start with an apology letter. I love love that so Ugh. much. Yeah, I'm gonna write that in my letter. That's so good. Use it. I mean, if you actually have an apology, true apology to money. Oh, definitely. You said that, and I felt it in my gut. Yeah, dear money, I'm sorry. Yeah, dear money, I was a jerk. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Dear money, I I have treated you like dirt my whole life. Yeah. And so is our entire culture. You know, I mean, it's, you know. Well, no, I don't think the entire culture has. I'm not going to go that far. I'm not, I'm not going to jump into, you know, because I've done it, the whole culture's done it. Clearly, the whole culture hasn't done it. Clearly, I've had patients who had damn good relationships with money because they had nice shoes and they drive nice cars and they have no complaints about paying me. And they're respectful of my time, too. It's those people without money that are usually not respectful of my time. But yeah. the people with money are almost to a T respectful of my time. That's wonderful. And, you know, also what I found too is like with, with my patients with nice cars and nice shoes, they they have, and we know that, they have just as difficult a time with money. More money, more problems, you know? I mean, so there's there's this this sense of like, oh, once we have all this money, you know, things will be better, which is why I said earlier about like the elders coming out of retirement and teaching us, you know, we have this deficit. I, I think it depends on which elder. Definitely. It's like, it's like that elder, that elder who's on social security and like not doing very well. I, I mean, maybe we need to hear those stories as a precautionary tale. Well, they, they might have some wonderful things to say about money. Because what I was getting at was some of my richest patients or people that I know, elders that I know, have a terrible relationship with money. And because money is soul work and they talk about their deathbed and their regrets. And, you know, Stephen Jenkinson, he talks about, he's, a, he's an author. He writes about grief. Ooh, you know Stephen Jenkinson. Yeah, he writes a lot. We know him as, oh. you know, part of the men's movement and he talks he has that story about about the stones of regret and you know your life is this fence line and you are piling up your stones of regret at the end of the fence and that is where, you know, your deathbed over there over there by the hill, you're piling up your stones of regret and if you don't look at them, then you think they're going to go away and that's not the case. And if you imagine them and you don't look at them, then you either imagine them as, as disappearing, which is not the case, or as this giant, huge pile of stones, which is also rarely the case. But if you visit them, which is akin to um, shaking the hand of the demon, right? Mm -hmm. And go to them at the end of your life when you walk along that fence as you walk along that fence line and approach the stones you can stand up on the hill up above them and look down and see them as small little stones a small part of your life right because you've 
you've acknowledged them, you've accepted them, you've visited them, right? And I love that story because um, when we think about money and and regret and grief, I mean, it's all entwined, right? And it's it's not about you know, money is not the answer. It's this, it's this soul work that money does to us. That is, that is quite the approaching the answer, right? So our patients with fancy shoes and cars have just as much money struggles, um, just because you have accumulated more of that has nothing to do with your relationship really with, with the essence of money. You know, maybe you have accumulated more of of that substance. But when it comes to this internal understanding and our deathbed and our pile of regrets, that's, that's what really matters, you know? And yes, it's great. I think that when we bring awareness and turn on this, this soul work in terms of money, that's when we can gain this wealth, have this money, have this abundant flow of money, and also see it as soul work and then be able to appreciate it. You know, that's when we're like, okay, this is having the gratitude and the presence, all the things, you know, there is no future, there's no past, there's just present. And being able to live with money and community and family and love and all the things, hell yeah, that's what we really want, you know, (laughs) with the money and the 100K, 200K, 1 million, whatever we want. (laughs) Well, I think as we're having this conversation, I come back again and again, what's the value? Mm. Right? I mean, you can name a number, 100K. Ooh, I'm a six-figure acupuncturist or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Seven figures, yeah. But that's not necessarily talking about the value and the value that it holds right. in your life and the value that it brings right. so that you're able to do certain things in the world that make the world a better place. Exactly. Building the web. Yeah. Yeah. More money means that you've got more resources to have an impact on the world. Definitely. Or or potentially. Mm -hmm. And if you build that into your business model, I mean, all the better. You know, that's that's exactly what I teach is what what impact, what's your why? What is your purpose for your business? Because business is a spiritual practice. Absolutely. So let's come back to something that you had spoken of earlier. I think something that many people—I don't—I hate using the word struggle. Let's just say it's uh, grist for the mill, (laughs) and and that's pricing. And what? Right, pricing. You were talking about pricing earlier. I think that's good grist for the mill of understanding something about value. I'd like to hear your thoughts on pricing and how you work with it. Yeah. So first, I, you know, with my clients, we talk about what they want to offer and um, what they're, you know, what, what, what they believe the value in. And then like the spell, the, the spell casting of saying the price and saying it out loud to yourself and then to your family members, your loved ones, and then putting it out there. Right. And talking about your, your pricing. And, you know, I usually, I'm like, all right, we're going to double that or triple that, whatever you just said, you know? So we, we go up because we tend to make ourselves smaller because that is what we're taught. Um, and it's not just women. I don't know if we're taught. It might be something we just decided to believe. I think a lot of us get small. Mm, yeah. Simply because we're scared. Definitely. But there's a lot of, 
of teachings around smallness and being small in our society? For example. So, okay, like just the simple do you when when you're walking down the sidewalk or and you, you know, you step to the side, there's this this notion of like women do this a lot. There's this good girl syndrome that we're taught. And when I say, you know, women with an X or like maybe just like the feminine parts of anybody, but um, it's this notion of, of keeping that down. We, our culture very much represses any sort of feminine notions, which is equity and community and sustainability, right? So anytime we do something like that, there is, if, if we're acting outside of that, it's immodest or it is acting too big or acting too proud. So our culture very much teaches us to, to stay small and humble. And I, so, I, so I talk about that in terms of pricing in that we usually come to our price from that place of um, being uncomfortable with this this notion of of overcharging or that we are taking people's energy or eating them but we have to be okay with being a predator because we're also okay with being prey it's this whole web of life that we're talking about and so i start there with just let's say the price out loud and talk about it for a few days get comfortable with your price and intuitively come to your price meaning what number really resonates with you because if we begin to listen to our guts, our our intuition, our our pricing will come to us. It it'll it'll feel good somatically, meaning in your body. So that's like a kind of a two-way approach from the very beginning that I teach around pricing and how to come up with whatever it is. It might be your hourly rate, it might be your package rate, your online course, your, you know, your one-on-one Zoom call that you want to start doing, whatever as a practitioner, right? So that's pricing's very much um, wrapped up in oppression and also worth. Say more about that. Pricing's wrapped up in oppression. In in this notion of of keeping small and this, you know, basically what I said about understanding that your worth is not equated to your in any sort of monetary value. So first you you cast this spell, you say your price, and then your work is to extract yourself from you you are not that price, you are not that worth. You you know, you are this is a representation of this value of what you're offering here and you know, it's the same notion of you are not your entire business or your entire brand. There are portions of it that you put out there that are aspects of your soul and you're very much passionate about, but it's not all consuming all you. It is an aspect or um, something that you are offering. It's an offering to this to this world. And part of this building a business intuitively and as a spiritual practice is bringing aspects of of those teachings from various cultures and spiritual tra- traditions into the business realm. And I think it's really important and really efficacious and perfect for these days, which is this coming feminine economy and this online realm too. You were just talking about women. And 
women are taught to step aside and, and to hold themselves small. What about all the men that are having problems with setting their pricing and all the men that are having trouble with running their businesses? Yeah, I think I think that's great. And I think it's also what I was saying about it's the feminine aspect in all of us. You know, we have both. We have masculine and feminine um, aspects of us. And the masculine aspect often comes off as confidence, right? And this that's the more yang manifestation of of like worth and i think that is part of the struggle of the masculine is trying to understand confidence and what that means and if you have it or don't have it and bringing awareness to that aspect of your being and then value would be more of the the yin right and so i do i do think i think it's this this balance between the two so when i say women it it it's coming from my own experience as a woman, but I totally realize and get that men struggle. Men have all the same money struggles. Oh my goodness. You know, the, from Adam Smith on, all the great economists have talked about the struggle and to use that word, yeah, struggle with money and how it's this balance between greed and scarcity. And when we, most of us slide into scarcity, the fear of scarcity because of this disdain for the greed, right? We all struggle with that, that, that balance. Is there something in between scarcity and greed? Is there a, a virtue that stands out between the polarities? The emotion between those two polarities is fear. Fear is that pivot point. So to bring, it's, it's this, okay, that is, that's what I'm scared of. That's the, the shadow work, right? to bring light into that fear, to bring it out of the unconscious realm. And when we bring awareness to our fears, that's when they start to dissipate, right? You know, mm. that that's the boogeyman in the closet. <laughs> so I definitely think that taking the fear out of it and bringing money back into this realm of, um, of balance, which is between the masculine and the feminine, between the yan and the yen, is going to help with our dealings with it. Well, often there are very good reasons for fear to be present. I mean, fear doesn't usually show up unless there's often a good reason. So there is that aspect of fear also trying to keep us safe, fear trying to keep us alive. Mm. You hear a rattle of a rattlesnake, you get scared. Um, you hear a throaty growl in the dark of the night. So, I mean, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's something that's doing its best as well to help us survive and thrive for that matter. It's just that it often shuts things down that it it, it may not need to. Right. I think with so many things, just like we're talking about money and it has its place, I think there is there is a place for that fear um, that's why I was asking you between these poles of greed and scarcity, what is there? And and when I think about fears as kind of that pivot point, it's like, oh, okay. That's something that can be worked with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to to take that notion of um, you know, the the primal brain and the flight. Uh, fight or freeze, you know, response of our nervous system. I think that we've seen how 
very popular those sorts of practices have become lately in the past past few years, but I mean past decades, especially you know, just the, the whole somatic experiencing movement and ha- how to deal with the fear when it gets into our bodies. And then if we think about psychology and like mental health, how in the past decades and hundreds of years, that has very much been popular to deal with it, especially in the terms of trauma. And money very much breeds that that trauma and fear breeds that trauma. So there's a lot there to to that we can work on. Exactly. I love how you just brought that aspect uh, of of hope and um, progression and evolution. Because that's that's what we're here to do. Yeah, well, that makes sense. We are here to evolve. (laughs) Successful critters evolve better than unsuccessful critters. And learning to uh, recognize what's valuable is always helpful in any evolutionary process. Double down on what works get rid of what doesn't. Love it. That's perfect. Lacey, anything else that you'd like to share with us around money before we uh, wind this down for today? Well, just to say that I I hope you all make tons of it because that is fabulous. <laughs> Let's all be filthy rich because you know what? Good people are listening to this podcast and the money needs to be in the hands of damn good people. So everyone out there, go make a shit ton of money. <laughs> This podcast is coming out right around the Chinese New Year, where they always say, Gong Shi Fat Sai, Happy New Year, get rich. Get rich. You deserve it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope that you have found today's conversation to be thought provoking and illuminative in terms of how you think about money and, more importantly, your relationship to it. For me, it helps to diffuse the negative images I have around money when I remember that it's an imprecise tool for recognizing value and that while it is easy to focus on money, it's better to keep our eyes focused on value and the importance of a sense of equitable exchange. As with most aspects of life, it's something we have the opportunity to revisit again and again so as to deepen our understanding. I don't think you can go wrong with being attentive to what brings value to your work and to your life. And again, if you find value with Geological, be sure to share it with a friend. The best exchanges are those that lead the giver and the receiver to feeling like they have more for having had the exchange. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (laughs) 